0: Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Joseph Bustos. Joseph is a state government and politics reporter at the State, a McClatchy owned newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina. He's a two thousand five graduate of Northwestern University who has previously been a reporter for three other papers. He's been with the state for the last four years. Hi Joseph, how are you?
1: I am well. How about yourself?
0: I'm good. And I'm looking forward to talking to you here. As we do with everyone sure. As we do with everyone to start, we ask the question what's your journalism origin story?
1: I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days and how far back do you want to go? All the way. Uh, (laughs) So I think the first time I ever been a quote unquote reporter or reported news, in elementary school, we had the quote unquote, I think it was the news team. And basically it was a video morning announcements. We say what's for lunch or who's absent or what what, uh, specials are happening today. And as part of that, they let us, write like on index three by five index cards stories from what's going on in the real world so that was the first time i ever reported on current events i might be watching what's happening on the five o'clock news the night before and that's where i would get my ideas when it was my turn in the rotation so i think that is actually my journalism origin story this is back in the fifth grade when it was the first time i got to be a reporter quote unquote uh and i was reporting to my Fellow elementary school students, so.
0: <laughs> no, that's awesome. That one, <laughs> I like it. Uh, that goes right alongside mine, which is when I was ten. I, me and a friend, uh, my friend and I, started a uh, baseball newsletter uh, that lasted one issue uh, <laughs> to preview the uh, to preview the upcoming season. Typed it out on an old typewriter. You can imagine this is forty years ago. And I, I think that's where it starts. All right. So tell us a little bit about your background and if there's anything in your family or heritage that lends itself to storytelling.
1: From a more serious professional standpoint, I guess, my cousin, Marsha, who now lives in Southern California, she was a sports reporter for a long time uh, and a sports columnist. And, and her last stop in journalism was with the Orange County Register. So I always looked up to her and how she got to go to all these Cool events, and she has actually a credential collage back at home with all of her credentials from all these really cool supporting events. So that's probably where the family lineage, or this most immediate family lineage of my journalism heritage starts. But you also, I mean, my my parents every Sunday I remember reading the newspaper, uh, the sports section, looking at, at at the box scores is what we did on Sundays and my mom every evening would be watching the the more the evening news, the lo- and it's the local evening news into the national news at 6.30 on the East Coast. So it's always been ingrained to me to know what's going on in the world. Always being ingrained to me to be a news junkie, to be aware of what's happening. So I think that that's where the heritage comes from and I've stuck with it all these years.
0: Yeah, and and you, that that essentially takes more serious shape as you go to Northwestern. And then, as I mentioned, you've been at three other papers, including one in the state that I'm in, Pennsylvania. What was the biggest thing that you learned? What were some of the biggest things that you learned along the way, both scholastically and then at the different stops that you were at?
1: From scholastically, I think one of the best things that I did, took was a photojournalism class my senior year in Northwestern the professor was very straight up about this. This will make you a better reporter. I'm not looking for you to take the prettiest photographs. I just want to make sure you could frame a shot, know some basic stuff about F-stop and ISO (laughs) settings. But this is about getting in people's faces and making them comfortable while you do it. And the third week into the class, he said, okay, no more shooting pictures of your friends or stuff on campus. Get off campus, start talking to strangers, go up to strangers and don't be afraid to ask if you could spend an entire day with them. (laughs) And it was, I think he was right about this because it was more about getting you out of your physical comfort zone and going up to strangers. I think that's something that's always stuck with me. And I say this to young reporters, don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Going to, there's more stories outside your comfort zone any day of the week. But tr- like traditionally, I'd had internships one in one in Florida uh, at the Florida Times Union in Jacksonville, one in Reading, Pennsylvania. And then I worked at three papers in Illinois for 13 and a half years. And everywhere you've learned something, my first two stops in Illinois were s- traditional small town coverage where you talk, t- you get to cover. Anything and everything except for sports. And even sometimes you would still cover sports from a different angle. Like, hey, the high school team just got to state and there's a big state championship that you get to get fan reaction to. So even time, at times when I'm not a sports reporter, I'm covering a sports-related story. But it's city council, it's school board, it's economic development, it's crime. It's everything and anything that happens, your geographic beat and that's those are, I think, some of the best times. Uh, I'm really happy I went through that experience. Living in a small town, coming, I grew up in Miami, a big city, and now I'm going to a small town, so it's a little bit of a culture shock. But you kind of, you you see something different. You you, you see a, a different way of life, and you get a little taste of municipal government and how education works. You get see how, how important the sewer system is, and. What people will do when they have to raise your water rates by $2 and 50 cents a month and how it'll dry. Some council members say, no, no, we're charging people too much. But that's, you, you'll learn how decisions made in Washington or state capital affect people on the local level. And at the end of the day, we're we're trying to talk to real people and talk about, what's happening affects their day-to-day lives. That's what we're trying to do.
0: How did you get to the state and what do you do in your current job?
1: So I got to the state in November, 2019. I'll rewind a little bit. My previous stop before the state was the Belva News Democrat in Southern Illinois, which is just outside of St. Louis. And my last two years there was a state affairs politics beat where I covered what happened in Springfield or how what happened, what happened in Springfield affected people back home and learning to develop those Relationships with politicians and lawmakers. That helped set me up for my current job here at the state newspaper, where here in Columbia, South Carolina, where I joined a state house team of four people, and we are covering state government uh, and politics. And I got here three months before the 2020 Democratic primary. And I was thrown into thrown into helping with that coverage. And that was a lot of fun. I do like to say my last stop in before coming here was in the red part of a blue state and I moved to the blue part of a red state everything is the opposite (laughs) so everything was turned upside down my whole worldview had to change Republicans control everything in South Carolina Democrats control everything in Illinois it's legal in Illinois marijuana is not legal in South Carolina gambling is allowed in Illinois gambling is not allowed in South Carolina so it it was definitely another culture shock. It wasn't a comfort zone, and you had to – I'm used to not being – not, not staying in a comfort zone. So you just jump right in. You try to meet people and talk to people and get good stories out of it.
0: And you're right in the middle of uh, the campaign trail again. You're in a state with some very prominent politicians, Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott, Nancy Mace, Nikki Haley. The governor says he looks forward to the day when Democrats are so rare that you can hunt them down with dogs. What makes South Carolina so interesting to cover?
1: well let's see from a presidential campaign perspective south carolina is an early primary state so you're going to get a lot of attention let's add two candidates from that state and so you're getting a lot of national attention and you have a lot of, you have two candidates while you're also trying to balance coverage from candidates who are coming in <laughs> from out of state so for us i was talking about this with some students earlier today We've turned into our advantage, which is the local context. We know all the local lawmakers, the local political operatives, and we're going to be here on February 25th, the day after the South Carolina Republican primary. We will write, my main focus the last several months has been Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and how their campaigns are developing. So writing about a little bit about their past, about their accomplishments, and talking to people who were here when Haley was governor, when Haley was a state lawmaker. And that's the type of stuff that I've been trying to to focus on. There's only so much of that you can do. If either Haley and Scott continue on, we'll be digging more into their past as well. I'm sure lots of media outlets will be as well, but we know we have the local contacts and we're going to try to, Uh, focus on that now i'm going to go back to the the quote you said of henry mcmaster yep the i i I, when i saw that you had those in your nose like oh someone saw my viral tweet from from back in may (laughs) so this is a comment that governor mcmaster has made several times in his life Uh, so he used to be a state party chairman he was speaking to the south carolina republican party convention at the time and mcmaster has a set of lines or stories that he goes to depending on the crowd and sometimes as reporters who've covered mcmaster i've covered mcmaster since 2019 you start to memorize a lot of these things you see oh i've heard that story before i heard that story before and one thing i said in that particular tweet was mcmaster goes back i think i was referencing that he's gone back to one of his regular lines so he's said this before, and I think uh, a Democratic operative even mentioned on Twitter, yeah, he's, he said that back in the 90s. Uh, I talked to some Republican operatives the day that he said it, and I tweeted it out, and they were saying, oh, my gosh, your tweet's going crazy. Like, yeah, I, don't, I can't believe it. And they said, yeah, but that's the story he tells. So for, for some people, it's like, oh, it's, I don't want to say it's not a big deal, but it's not something new. And it is a very sensitive subject for black people in the state because that's how black people were were hunted down or when they were uh, enslaved and they're trying to escape. So, yeah, it's a very sensitive issue. Is it a new line from him, from Governor McMaster? No. Should he change it up? That's probably something many people would want him to do. He was speaking to a crowd of Republican Party diehards who are at the convention, they're picking their new chairman. And he used to be chairman of the Republican Party, so he knows what what he wants as a Republican Party member, and that's to be to have victories on election night. So that's where all that comes from. I'm not excusing it. Yeah. The
0: point is more that there's never a dull moment in your state between uh, things like that, Lindsey Graham, and all the candidates that you oh, mentioned.
1: Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, and I thought that was a pretty benign tweet. When I tweeted it out, I wasn't thinking it too much how much it would blow up. But yes, we have Lindsey Graham. In 2020, my assignment for the election was covering the Graham-Harrison race. And at the time, was the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history. So you know how stressful that is on a lot of people. I've joked that it was so stressful that my doctor put me on a second blood pressure medication. I've made that joke to some people who were in the campaigns, and their response to me has been, what do you think it did to us?
0: So all right, so so it's pretty it's it's pretty intense. It's pretty um,
1: intense here from time to time.
0: Yeah, so so give us an example of a, a recent day in the life for you.
1: Let's go back to last week. Nikki Haley filed to run, formally filed to run in the in the South Carolina Republican primary. Shit. Um, we this is no surprise that she's filing to run for president in South Carolina. It's just uh, more of a chance for her to be in front of television cameras and get her message out and we were lucky enough that she also took questions so when when they did the event at the south carolina state house where she had been governor for six years been a lawmaker for six years before that so they set it up with a with a lectern and then a table so she could sign the paperwork and hand over the check for 50 grand to appear on the ballot and when i was Hearing what the setup was going to be like, I was thinking, oh, this is going to look a lot like a bill signing. And this is more the message for the day, or whether it be overt or subtle, is remember, I was your governor. And we did well economically while I was here. So that that was the message for the Haley campaign that particular day. And we also were lucky that she decided to take questions from the media uh, when we were... Uh, I got there probably about an hour before the event started. And I was media sometimes were conditioned to be that we sit behind the audience, but I looked closely at the at the two rows of chairs that were right in front of the lectern and it said reserved press, like, oh, okay, this is cool. Well, she's probably gonna take questions. So there were two rows. The first row had five seats. I sat right in the middle and <laughs> When she said, all right, I'll take some questions from the media. I jumped in to the governor and I asked her a question about, about her and Tim Scott being critical of one another. And, and it was a different question than the news of the day, which a lot of it has been about Israel about also about winnowing the field. And again, I was leaning in towards, Hey, I'm the local reporter with two local candidates in the presidential race. I'm going to ask something that is, which I view as different. I may be, zigging when everyone else is zagging and I'm not writing I didn't want to write a story that said Nikki Haley was going is filed for the South Carolina Republican primary yeah we knew that was going to happen let's do something a little bit different Use it as an opportunity to show some potential tension points that are in the
0: race so you mentioned Tim Scott just a second ago and one of the stories that I wanted to kind of I guess, look at, was you do news analysis in addition to news reporting. Just as an Mm -hmm. example, there was a piece in in the Own the Libs era. Is Tim Scott too nice to make up ground in the presidential race? How does something like that go from initial idea to completed story?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. I was talking to a consultant, a local political consultant about this. And the question is, like, one of the things that we have seen is, Tim Scott has like high favorable ratings, but people who actually support him is actually pretty low. And the argument from the Scott campaign is that, yeah, that means he has the highest ceiling. Okay, that's nice that people like him. Will people vote for him, (laughs) is the (laughs) question. And it's actually a question to Henry McMaster. For years, Henry McMaster wanted to be governor. Everyone likes Henry McMaster. The question is, would anyone actually vote for him? And he eventually was elected governor in 2018 after ascending to it from lieutenant governor uh, the year before. So that's how that particular story came about. It was like, we're looking at his low poll numbers, but everyone likes Tim Scott. He has that optimistic message. He uh, is this happy warrior. Everyone loves the story of going, pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. And if you take away the D of the R, it's an inspirational story at the end of the day and he that's how that particular one came about it's a key like we wanted to see uh, talk about whether there's a chance for scott uh to do well it's a question about path at the end of the day at the end of the day as well what's what's scott's path to victory or to the nomination and it's convincing people that he can be that it is good to elect the happy warrior, and I don't know if uh, people will ultimately buy that. Now he had in the second debate, you saw him shift a little bit, where he was throwing some punches at Ramaswamy. He got into a little dust up with Nikki Haley as well, because in the first debate he kind of was lost in the background. So I think that's that's where that particular story came about. Is could he show the aggressive the aggressive card? At the end of the day,
0: how do you balance stories like that and stories like the one that you did in September about what voters were looking for in a candidate with stories of like staged events, you know campaign stops, things of that sort. yeah, um, that, how do you how do you balance that? Yeah,
1: that's a good question because I think a lot of that goes to the philosophy of your publication. We want to get away from the This Thing Happened story. They're gonna see that on your local five o'clock or 5.30 news. And the one blessing, one of the blessings of, of the digital era, we know what people read and what they don't read. In the old days where you only focus on print, you said, here's what happened at this particular event yesterday, but okay. <laughs> We want to be able to show what this event means in a greater context. You use the event as a source, really. That's one one way of looking at it. It's something I still struggle from time to time. Whenever I tell my editor, yeah, I'm going to go to this. I don't know if I'm going to write anything off of it. And my editor will tell me, okay, look, I don't want to write a, this thing happened event because uh, this thing happened story. What else can we get go with? What else can we do? So sometimes you go to a Jeff Duncan barbecue thinking, all right, I'm going to go talk to a bunch of voters for, hey, are you a shopper or are you someone who's locked in and talk to voters there? It's just an opportunity to talk to people. Sometimes, I mean, I will say Donald Trump is very popular in South Carolina. So sometimes we have to cover the Trump rally and we just have it. That's all there is. And it will get a lot of readership. Uh, Because Trump will make news almost any day of the week.
0: That was was my next question. So you'll be the second reporter that we've asked this. The first, I had an interesting experience. It was a Muslim woman uh, covering it for her college paper. But I'm curious for you as, well, as a male, what was the experience like? And what is the experience like of covering a Trump rally?
1: So there's always the point in a Trump rally, I think I've been to six or seven now. Went to four in Illinois when I worked in Belleville, three or four now here in, in South Carolina. There's that point where he will point to the media in the back and say, "Look at all the fake news." And I remember joking with some former coworkers of mine, former colleagues, like, "Yeah, it's kind of a badge of honor." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, it's like one of his hit songs that he plays at the concert." But "Yeah, let's let's get that one out of the way." The most recent one that I went to, you just go up when you talk to people there. If you go up, being honest of who you are and being saying, "Yeah, I'm a, I'm not a national reporter. I'm a local reporter." They're more willing to talk to you. They're willing to say, "Yeah, this is why I support Trump. I think the criminal charges against him are are, are BS." So that's what they, a lot of them will think. I care about the border. They'll 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 bring up all these issues, and I really liked what he did when he was president. So, if you're just honest about who you are. You know that there's a lot of security to begin with, so no one's gonna, no one should do anything stupid. It's generally okay. And you also have a press pin where you could kind of stretch your legs, put your laptop down, and get away from everyone. The last one I went to was outside and it was hotter than we anticipated going in. So you kind of play off that, like you say, we're all in this together. So, well, the, you just, you just, Show people with respect, hear them out, maybe nod a little bit. And then you kind of, you're able to get an interview and you get a little peek into what they're thinking and their thoughts, whether they're valid or not, they're worthwhile listening to.
0: You're able to get the story. In other words, what is the process of writing all these different things like for you?
1: Big day-to-day, if it's a daily story, sometimes you write ahead, you write stuff, background ahead of time. So you're not rushing when you want to get something up. But the Trump story, the Trump rally that I went to in Somerville, I wrote a, I wrote several of those paragraphs before I even left my apartment. So it was just ready to go and I could pull them where I needed to, them as quickly as possible. Because as soon as he's done speaking, we want to post a story or I want to get it to my editor hey, here's a story. He just finished speaking. Let's post it right away. Even some of the debate stories that we've done recently, we watched the last two debates. They've been outside of South Carolina. And the next one's going to be in Miami. So again, I'm not going to be there physically, but I could watch on television. So you write ahead of time. And then as the debate is happening, or as the speech is happening, you're writing, okay, this is something new he said, or this is something knew that Haley and Scott went after or DeSantis and Haley are going after one another. So you write as you go and you pull some background as you need it and then when the debate's over, you have the story edited and you can post right away. For some of those longer term pieces that may take a week or two weeks, it's a lot of talking with an editor. Okay, here's what I think the story's going to look like. Or, all right, let me talk to some people and then maybe... All right, I spoke to these people, this person said X, this person said Y. The the goal sometimes with some longer enterprise stories is to constantly chat with your editor. Here's where it's going. Here's where I think some of the hiccups are. Here's this other source I need. And the editing process, when I turn something in, sometimes it's back and forth. An editor will go through, here are some suggestions, here are some changes, here are some questions I have. Then I'll address those and I'll send it back to the editor take another run through and then you go ahead and we're good to post the story.
0: What's the best part of all this for you?
1: Talking to strangers is fun. I'm like, nat- honestly, I am naturally introverted. This job has forced me, I say this again, comfort zone, of my comfort zone, but it's forced me to learn how to talk to strangers and get in their faces and try to hopefully make them feel comfortable in five to 10 minutes. <laughs> so. <laughs> And And tell me your life story. <laughs> so the secret also. the
0: secret for an introverted aspiring journalist is one, get a camera and get in people's faces. yeah, and two, and to get them get out of your comfort zone yeah. and just force yourself to do things,
1: yeah. I think that's that's part of it. I mean, I think it is really has forced me to 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 talk to be able to talk to people. And part of the political beat is also just, long-term relationships with lawmakers or their staffers. And you you do it by talking to them on background or off the record, or when you're at the state house, talking to them in the hallways before or after a committee meeting or after a big vote or before a big vote. And it's these small conversations. I had one colleague say to me, I'm always worried when Joe is lurking around one of the antechambers, <laughs> of the hallways, because I know he's up to something, <laughs> and that might be juicy, but I don't know what it is, and he's always going in a different direction, so it, it's roaming around the offices in the hallways that sometimes you find some of the best stuff.
0: What is the co- the coverage when you get the presidential stuff out of the way? What's the <laughs> coverage of the south carolina state house like
1: so february twenty fifth is essentially what am I doing <laughs> on that date So my main task at the state house is actually covering the budget process and it could be mundane, but this is where teacher pay gets decided. It's where our state employee pay gets decided. It's where earmarks get doled out. It may be where they figure out a tax cut or do we include a tax cut in the budget? So what's going to be really tough is our session actually starts January 9th and it runs through May or June, depending how long it takes them to finish the budget. So there's going to be about a month and a half, two month time period where we're doing both state house coverage and presidential election coverage. So I'm glad that we're not doing this early next year, or at least doing this podcast early next year, because I probably would be like, no, I don't have time. But it, it's a lot of it for me. It's, it's covering the budget. The last few years, we've had some long abortion debates. Luckily or unluckily, I've had some colleagues have been able to cover some of that every once in a while, I'll jump in and help out. Maybe, I don't know if we'll get another one this coming year. It depends on if certain Republicans really wanna push the issue, but their leadership has said, maybe we need to let our six week abortion law kind of just like be in place for a while. And I talked to one lawmaker who once said to me, I've, it seems like every year we have this debate, maybe a good year not to have it. And sometimes it's a Comptroller General who, who's the state's top accountant who miscounted $3.5 billion over the course of 10 years. And we learned that story by sitting in a Senate subcommittee meeting one day. Uh, one, couple, one senator texted me saying, hey, get down here now something really wonky, something really crazy is about to happen. And I was the only reporter in the room. And sometimes it was a big story really shocked a lot of people when we finally posted it. But because I was the only reporter in the room, I decided not to tweet anything from it. I was like, hold the scoop to myself for as long as possible. And I had to go back up to the press room to write up, write up the story. And I had spent, after I spoke to the comptroller about this, I was roaming around the state house and I had documents with me and I'm now back up in the press room and I'm writing it. And one of my colleagues, one of my coworkers, I wasn't talking to him and he noticed how quiet I was being, but I'm also around competitors who are uh, five to 10 feet away from me. I don't want them to know what I'm working on because they're all listening to another debate that's happening. I had a document that explained the error and what had happened. I was keeping it face down on my desk so no one knew what I was working on. And the only person I'm talking to are my editors over Slack over and that's all it was. And we post the story, we got, we made sure we did like email alerts and I tweeted it out and I got up and I walked downstairs to the lobby where everyone was paying attention to this other debate, which, all the other media outlets we were paying attention to and i just went to like some to some people watching the debate hey go to my twitter click on the <laughs> go read the story i just posted and they're all looking at me and it's like a bunch of like holy crap what the hell and i ended up having like a four to five hour head start on everyone on that because we were just in the right place at the right time and sometimes that's that is like the biggest adrenaline rush uh you could have in this job and it was fun for, for a couple hours, and the Senate finance chairman said to me, like, yeah, Joe, you had a head start on that, like, didn't you? Like, yeah. The Senate finance chairman even addressed the Senate about this after the story posted and when another senator showed him his phone, showed him a phone, and it was showing him a story. Like, yeah, Joe just posted the story. I'm sorry. Joe just scooped you. <laughs> but it was cool.
0: But that's, I guess, in a in what can be sometimes a mundane beat, it's cool to have uh, that kind of moment. How has yeah. being a journalist shaped how you view the world?
1: That's a good one, because I, I was thinking about this for a little bit. I mean, I, I you meet different personalities. I grew up in Miami, and were the sports that matter, were the Miami Dolphins and the Miami Hurricanes and the Miami Heat. Those are the teams I rooted for, and I still root for these days. Add North, the Northwestern Wildcats as well for my alma mater. Going, being a journalist in a small town, and you see how everything revolves around the local high schools, that's eye-opening to me and even to a certain degree here in south carolina which some will say is like a big small town or a bunch of uh, a state with a bunch of small towns you see how much pride there is at the local high school or of the local high school and the football team or the basketball team and how much if a team's doing well they're all rooting behind them and like it's just high school (laughs) it's not this isn't the high i i don't Winning a state football championship, I don't think should be a highlight of someone's life. It should be something that happens in someone's life if if they're lucky enough for it, or they're good enough for it. But it's something about town pride and you learn about that. And it's like, oh, that's really interesting to me. It's a fun dynamic. We're having a debate now in South Carolina about what is the best way to classify schools in terms of how big they are or where do they recruit from where they draw students from and it all comes back to everyone wants to do well. They want their local team to do well. And sometimes that local team is a local high school team and there's pride around that. And there's nothing wrong with it. At the end of the day, the more I think about it, I'm just sometimes surprised when I lived in small towns, I could buy the local high school's t-shirts at the Walmart. I'm like, Oh, Okay. I didn't remember seeing that at my local department store growing up.
0: So pride in where you live, certainly. Yeah. How do you manage how do you manage your mental health?
1: <laughs> Sometimes, we're in the fall right now. So I like to go to a bar on Sundays and watch football. I like to yell at the TV screen because I know that in my own mind they probably could hear me and I'm having an effect on the game when I know I'm not. <laughs> But for me, that's that's how that's my stress relief, is watching watching sports. So I'll watch the Miami Dolphins on Sundays, either watch Northwestern football on on Saturdays or Miami Hurricane football on Saturdays, or sometimes both, especially if there are two different times. And so you visit my...
0: state houses on vacation.
1: Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. So behind me for the for those in the audio audience.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. It is only an audio audience, but yeah, you can describe it.
1: So for over my left shoulder is a truck scratcher. And I've scratched off states where I've been to the state capitol building. I've always had this thought, oh, it'd be cool to get to all the state houses. But I never really thought about how I would do it until 2020 when I had been to six at that point. And we couldn't go anywhere for a while. So I had time to think this out, plan it out. And I ended up, Putting together, okay, here's how I would divide up the states. Here's a here are road trips that make sense and to get states that are together. Here are the easy ones to get from South Carolina. And, and my friend, I told my friend about this. So she got me this trek scratcher. So every time I go to a state capital, I scratch off the state. So there's 18 that have been scratched off uh behind me. And the most recent ones that I went to were Arkansas and Oklahoma. And when I was in Oklahoma, I actually was talking to some friends of mine who actually worked, who covered that state house. And for, I go on vacation and the day I go visit the Oklahoma state house, they're actually in a special session. So I could see the journalists working. I, as I'm walking around with some of the journalists that I knew there, they ran into some lawmakers and I even asked a question and during my formal tour, Ran and we actually ran into the governor of Oklahoma. You you never know who you're going to run into with these things. I, I I like going on the tour and when I the questions I ask is like what's the political divide in each chamber, how many chambers are there, how many members are in, in each chamber, and the other question I like to ask is where does the press sit? Um, some have press boxes, some just say you can stand in the back of the room. So I always like to ask those questions. And when I was in California, I was taking a tour, and there's some people who don't know much, too much about how state government works. And they take us. They we went to the gallery of the House Chamber in California, and one of the tour people on the tour said, "Wait, you can come here and watch what happens." I'm like, "Here, yes, these are your elected officials. <laughs> you can come here and watch." And like. Wow, I'm going to come one day. I want to see this happen. Like, so it, that actually helps open my eyes about like, not everyone understands the inner working of government and you, everyone is learning uh, about this. And like some of the tour guides, they come at it from a idealistic point of view. Some, some actually know the answers to to some of the, uh, questions that I ask, which is like, where's the press (laughs) sit? like, how, how much access do they have?
0: Yep. All right. So I did want to acknowledge one thing, too. You mentioned that over your shoulder, you, uh-huh. have a, you have a map of the states and scratched out the different places that you've been. You have a funny thing going where when you attend a morning Zoom meeting with your colleagues, you have a different display over your shoulder. One day, it might be a painting from your niece. Another day, it might be a 1997 Marlins pennant. Another day, it might be a picture of you and the actor Stephen Tobolowski, And my favorite, the picture of your kindergarten diploma. What the heck is this?
1: So when we started this work from home stuff back in 2020, one of my coworkers was joking about, all right, about like seeing random things and what everyone sees, we're all at home, we're not all work pre- prepared to like what we normally have at, at work. And one of my coworkers said, but the, one of the plus sides is I get to see this giant framed poster, Bare Naked Ladies poster that Joe has. It's an autographed poster from the band Bare Naked Ladies from 2010 from their spring tour. So to be basically a wise ass, I said, okay, you're gonna point that out. I'm gonna change what's behind me. Thinking we'll be back to the office in a month. And so it's like random stuff in my apartment random pieces of art, random posters that I had. And then when I realized, okay, we might be at this for a longer time. I don't know how much longer I could keep this up. So I had like roadmaps at a certain point when I would go home to Miami and visit my folks. I was bringing stuff back up. So the kindergarten diploma was something I found in my childhood home and brought it up. So it, it really was just a joke about, all right, here's what's here's what we have and just changing the background behind you. When I don't have this map up, uh, I actually have a, a whiteboard, and sometimes I'll put pictures uh, that I've blown up uh, behind me. Sometimes I'll I'll put my Twitter handle. I was speaking to some students today over Zoom, and I put my Twitter handle on there as well as um, my newspaper's Twitter handle, so they could come fo- they could follow us. And it's a just a silly thing to do. Uh, I I have gotten out of the habit of it in the last year, mainly because we've now gone back to working in person. I'm also sometimes traveling. And if I'm traveling and I'm doing the morning meeting from a different location, it could be Tim Scott's campaign kickoff. It could be the state house. So there are different places where I do it. So I I have gotten out of the habit of it. But it is good if I ever have to do a TV interview, I could always change it behind me. I I'll put like random pictures of my friends behind me and then hey I just did this TV interview. Here you and are. And so and so was in it with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, on a more serious note, the show is called The Journalism Salute. Uh-huh. We salute you for your good work and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work to close the episode?
1: So I want to say my the first person I want to say is John Monk. He is a longtime veteran reporter and he uh, he covers courts and he has some of the best relationships with lawyers and judges in the state of South Carolina. Uh, he covered a lot. He was one of the lead reporters on our Alex Murdoch coverage. So he always knows what's happening even before it, hits the, it, it gets released. So he's always ahead of a lot of people. And the other one I'm going to say is actually one of my competitors, Nick Reynolds. I was thinking about this a little bit today. Nick works for the Post and Courier. He moved here from Wyoming a couple of years ago, and he brings a lot of, he's a good competitor in terms of he brings a different perspective. And there are times I'm like thinking, oh, that's a great story. I wish I had done that.
0: Joseph Bustas, thank you for taking the time to join us. We will be following your work as you cover the political races over the next year and change. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.